This morning, I am not preaching, and Matt's away on vacation, and we have the privilege of uh, receiving God's word from one of our ministry partners, Armando Robles. Uh, he's not a stranger to Fellowship Raleigh, um, but for those of you who don't know him, uh, he is a missionary with One Collective in, uh, in the Middle East. I'm not at liberty to share the country, um, but just know that um, we partner with them not only financially, but I know that they're very good friends with the Schoolfield family. He, and it, uh, it's a custom that, you know, every summer they usually come here, share God's word. So I just want to invite you uh, to just give a nice warm hand clap as we invite Armando Robles, to, who's bringing God's word this morning. Thanks, Jonathan. Uh, it is a pleasure for us to be back with you um, and back in, in person and in the flesh. Uh, we're doing a little two-week mini-series on faith, what it, what it means to believe. Um, and, and maybe let me just start out by sharing, reminding some very familiar common verses. Uh, you think of things like Mark 2.5. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, son, your sins are forgiven. Or Acts 16.31, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Right? Or Galatians 2, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Faith, belief. Like, What is a Christian? A Christian is a believer, someone who believes. A Christian is a person of faith, someone who has faith. And that sounds so simple. And it is simple, right? Believe in Jesus and you'll be saved. That is the gospel message. That is the message of the Bible in summary. But then you read some other verses. Verses like 1 Corinthians 13, 2. If I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. Meaning I could have a kind of faith that could even accomplish miracles and not be a Christian at all. Or James 2.19, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So demons believe, in a sense, though we're pretty confident they're not numbered among believers, as we typically use the word. Or you think about John 8, where we read that after Jesus said certain things, many believed in him. And then immediately Jesus challenges the legitimacy of that belief. Right? It's, it's then that he says, if you abide in my word, then you're truly my disciples. And within a few verses, those believers are picking up stones to kill Jesus. That doesn't sound like saving faith. So what is real faith? What does it mean to believe? That's our question for the next couple of weeks. And it's not simply a theological question. There are many professing Christians who struggle with this. They know that they believe in one sense, but they question, do I really believe? Or sometimes we can struggle when thinking about others that we care about, right? Oh, your friend, your cousin, are they, are they a Christian? And they're like, well, yeah, I, I think so. I'm not sure if they really believe. Genesis 15. Abraham believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. This is real belief. And this passage that we're going to look at today, Genesis 15, is one of the foundational building blocks of the Bible. To say, if you trust in God, then you have a faith after this pattern. 
And so we read later on in Romans that a Christian is one who shares the faith of Abraham, the father of us all. Meaning if you have real biblical faith, then you have a faith that follows the pattern of Genesis 15. So it's worth pausing to consider what we learn, what real faith is. And I think the basic message of the chapter that we're about to read is this, that above all appearances and in the face of all challenges, faith believes the words of God himself. Now, as we walk through the passage, we're going to look at four different sections and learn four different aspects of real faith. We'll learn about the nature of faith, the, the confirmation of faith, the challenges of faith, and the guarantor of our faith. So let's read the passage, and we'll get started. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield, your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. It's the word of the Lord. So, first, the nature of faith, verses 1 to 6. The first thing we read is, The word of the Lord came to Abram. And in one way or another, that is always the start. To, to have true faith, the word of God must come to you. God's word is something that comes in from the outside. You cannot manufacture it. You cannot think your way to it. You cannot believe unless the word of God comes to you. And yet, the word is not simply divine truth in general. It is a word of grace and promise. So when God starts to speak, he says, Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. And 
in effect, in, in broad terms, God comes to us and he says, I am with you, I am for you, I will bring blessing to you beyond what you can imagine. That is the first step of faith. But as we continue reading, we learn more about this word that comes to us. To hear that it's a word of grace and blessing and favor, that sounds good. We like that. Verses 2 and 3 are a little bit more challenging. Abram is childless. God has promised him offspring, and he has none. The heir of his house is one of his servants. Meaning, for Abram, as is often the case for us, there is a disconnect between our experience and what we understand of God's word. That what we see, what we feel, what's happening all around us, what we think and understand does not always align with the word of promise. And so Abram says, a member of my household will be my heir. And it's very difficult for the modern reader to appreciate the depths of anguish and the feelings of failure and poverty that were bound up with having no children in the ancient world. Because God, in effect, tells Abram, you're blessed. But in Abram's mind, he knows there is no such thing as a blessed life without a child. Meaning what God tells him feels fundamentally inconsistent with his experience of life. And that is an aspect of our experience of the word of God. We experience it in all kinds of ways. Right? God tells us about the severity and the evil of our sin. But frankly, we just don't feel that bad. Right? I mean, sure, nobody's perfect, but the sort of depraved, self-absorbed idolaters that the Bible describes us as, most of us just don't think of ourselves that way most of the time. Or God tells us that he's sovereign over all things, but there's often a decent bit of stuff in our life that feels like it's spinning out of control. God, God tells you that he will give you the desires of your heart. Now, maybe you're single or want to be married, or you're married and you're struggling, or you have a lousy job, or you don't have any job at all, or you can't find a friend, or you're struggling to have children, or any other myriad of things that are good and that you really want and are not happening. And the, the vocabulary and the way this is written in the original, it pictures it in a really striking way that we can't quite bring out in English. Because the verb to be an heir has the basic meaning of to gain possession. And so it's commonly used to speak of one nation after they've conquered another nation and they're taking possession of the land or they're plundering their goods, right? And so it's then used of an heir taking possession of your stuff after you die. And so this is the basic tension at its core. God says to Abram, he says to his people in general, you will possess. And yet we often feel, I am being dispossessed. And in the case of his heir, the difference between feeling like he has great possession and feeling that he will be utterly dispossessed and have nothing is bound up with the identity of that heir. If his heir is his own child, then he feels that he basically has the earthly equivalent of eternal life. His blessing goes on. But if his heir is his servant, then he feels that he is being plundered, that he is losing all that he has. God's word to us is often not consistent with our experience of life. And in the face of that seeming contradiction, 
God's word does not back down. Quite the opposite. God doubles down on the truth of his word. And so in verse 4, again we read, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. Basically, God says this, look, Abram, your perception of reality, your understanding, your feelings, none of that shapes reality. My word is true. My promise is true. Things will be exactly as I say. I said you will have a son, and that means you will have a son. You may be 99, your wife may be far beyond the years of childbearing, you may have lived with your wife for decades trying to have a kid and failed. None of that is relevant at all. But God doesn't stop there. And when you keep reading, he's even more audacious. He doesn't just tell Abram, you'll have a son and an heir, which is a crazy enough thought for this old man. No, after he doubles down on his initial bid, he pushes all the chips to the center of the table and in effect bets the house. He says, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. So shall your offspring be. That is to say, in the very area where you feel barren, in the very area where you feel your greatest lack, God says you will have a blessing beyond your ability to count. Uh, several of our boys really like basketball. Um, and imagine that you've got a young child, uh, and they are actively working on I improving their game. They want to make it. And then they get seriously, devastatingly injured, and they start to despair of the future. And you can picture the parent coming alongside the child. Don't worry, you're going to be able to play again. This is not that. This is a parent coming along that child who is uncertain if they will ever be able to walk again, let alone play ball, and saying, don't worry, you're going to be the first pick in the NBA draft in a couple years and go down as the greatest player in the history of mankind. Right? Or maybe you have a friend and she's just had her heart broken. Some guy she thought she was going to marry broke up with her, and she's crushed. And, and maybe a friend comes along to her and says, this is not the end. There are other guys. God has someone for you. Again, this is not that. This would be the friend coming up to her and saying, Prince Charming, the king of the country, with the looks of a Greek god and the character of Jesus himself and the romantic nature of Romeo is about to come and sweep you off your feet. God's promise is not simply contrary to our experience of the world. It is an off-the-charts promise of abundant blessing and life beyond what we are able to imagine. God's word of promise comes to us, and it stands in utter contrast to much of our experience of life. And his word insists that what we see and believe and think and experience is basically irrelevant to the way reality will ultimately play out. So, what is faith? Well, it's picking sides. It's answering this question. What is more in accord with reality, that which you see or that which God says? Before you stand two things, and both of them claim to be true, the first is your perception of reality based on everything you can see and understand. And the second is the word of God. 
when they conflict, you will trust in one and doubt the other. You will side with one and reject the other. Lazarus dies. He's dead. He's buried. His sisters are in mourning. Jesus shows up and says, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. He goes to the tomb and tells them to take the stone away. And that doesn't make any sense. Lord, by this time, there will be an odor, for he's been dead for four days. Jesus, pardon me, no offense or anything, but what you're saying doesn't make sense. A rotting corpse smells horrible, and that's my brother's body in there. Jesus tells her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Did I not tell you? Do you see the contest? In this corner, a dead man in a tomb. In this corner, the word of Christ. Which one wins? Which one will shape reality? Which one does reality truly conform to? Which one should you trust and build your life upon? And listen, you do pick sides. You may think the Bible is true. You may believe that Jesus died and rose from the grave. Amen. A lot of people believe that who don't believe. Demons believe that. You see your faith when the word of God comes into conflict with your experience of life. You hit something reading the Bible that, frankly, you don't like. Maybe even something that feels wrong to you. Who do you side with? God puts a restriction upon you that goes against something you desire. Who do you side with? God sends something into your life that you don't understand and that brings you great pain. He tells you that he's with you, that his intention is to bless you, that ultimately not a hair on your head will perish. With whom do you side? When the word of God comes into conflict with your understanding and your experience of the world around you, who do you side with? Faith is siding with God. It is trusting what he says above what you see and understand. In the words of Andy Stanley, faith is confidence that God is who he says he is and that he will do what he has promised to do. Faith is not a power or a force. It is not a vehicle by which we can coerce God into something against his will. It is simply an expression of confidence in the person and character of God. It is the proper response to the promise or revelation of God. And the result of faith is justification, being declared righteous by God. God does not declare Abram righteous because of his great obedience. He doesn't declare him righteous because he succeeded in living a nice life. God credits Abram with righteousness because Abram has faith in God's word. That is how it has always been. The path to salvation has always been the same. Who is saved? Those who believe in the revealed word of God. That is how Abraham became righteous before God. That is how King David became righteous before God. That's how the apostle Paul was credited with righteousness. That is how you and I can be credited with righteousness. Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. At its core, saving faith is trusting in God's word above our own understanding and all else we see in the world.
That's the first point. And that brings us to our second section, verses 7 to 11. And here we learn about the foundation of faith. Now, as our section begins, Abram asks for confirmation. He says, about the land, O Lord God, how shall I know that I shall possess it? And, and note, Abram has just exercised remarkable faith in God. God has affirmed that faith. And so now Abram asks for a kind of confirmation to strengthen his faith. The, the flow of verses 6 to 8 is, Lord, I trust your word. Please confirm your word to me. God, I trust you. Strengthen my trust. So how does God do that? How does God confirm our faith? Well, he makes a contract, a covenant. And in the ancient world, when two parties would make a contract, they didn't write out a paper agreement. Paper was too radically expensive and almost nobody knew how to write. Rather, they had a ceremony. And if the agreement was significant, they would sacrifice animals. And then each party would walk between the pieces. It was a way of saying, may it be done to me as has been done to these animals if I do not fulfill my word. And so to pass through the pieces was basically to obligate yourself to fulfill the terms of the covenant under the penalty of death. And so in Jeremiah 34, 18, we read this. The men who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant that they made before me, I will make them like the calf that they cut in two and passed between the parts. And, and that's why the, the verb for making a covenant in the Old Testament, the verb that's used is often the verb to cut. You cut a contract. And so as soon as God tells Abram to get the animals, do you notice God doesn't have to tell him what to do? Abram knows exactly what God is doing. He doesn't need instructions. He doesn't ask him what's going on. He simply prepares for the ceremony. Abram asks God for a guarantee, and God says, okay, let's make a contract. Now, Abram knows how solemn and important such a ceremony is, so he protects the carcasses until God's ready to begin the ceremony. God gives his word to his people. That should be enough. That is enough. His word is gracious and amazing, and he is God. What more could we ask for? But he gives us more. He actually enters into a covenant with his people, meaning he formally binds himself to his people. God confirms our faith by making a covenant with us. As it says in Hebrews, when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So the first verses of the chapter, that first section, showed us, you could say, the superabundant content of God's promise. This next section shows us the superabundant manner in which God gives his promise. In, in every way, his word is good and gracious, beyond what we could imagine asking for. One of the reasons we can trust God's word above all that we see is that God enters into a real covenant with us. He confirms our faith in his word. That brings us to our third section. And up to this point, things have been primarily positive, right? We trust God above and beyond what we see and understand, but it makes sense to do that. He is God after all. His promises are amazingly good. He confirms them to us. But as we turn to our third section, verses 12 to 16, we come upon two different challenges to faith. You, you could call them two obstacles that faith needs to overcome. First, in verse 12, Abram falls asleep. 
and you read, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Abram is about to have a unique encounter with God. And in a way, it is terrifying. That is a theme throughout Scripture. That's why Hebrews 10 tells us it is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Or Deuteronomy 4 says, the Lord our God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Um, Rudolf Otto was a German philosopher, lived around 100 years ago. Uh, He wrote a fascinating book called The Idea of the Holy. He spent decades studying the human experience of the divine across all the cultures and religions that he could find. And he argues that whenever people have a lived experience of the divine, it involves something that he labeled numinous awe. And what happens is that we come into contact with something that is utterly beyond us, we are drawn to it, and yet can't stand to be in its presence. That when humans experience the divine, it both attracts us and repulses us. He writes this, The truly mysterious object is beyond our apprehension and comprehension, not only because our knowledge has certain irremovable limits, but because in it we come upon something inherently other, whose kind and character are incommensurable with our own, and before which we therefore recoil in wonder that strikes us chill and numb. The numinous object may appear in the mind an object of horror and dread, but at the same time it is no less something that allures with a potent charm. And the creature who trembles before it, utterly cowed and cast down, has always at the same time the impulse to turn to it, nay, even to make it somehow his own. Consider who God is. He is a being so awesome as to uphold the entire universe. He dwells in unapproachable light. He is entirely pure, free from any blemish or sin. He is beautiful beyond imagination. He is king, judge, and lord, not just of some piddly little nation, but of galaxies, of every being that has ever existed. If you would know God, that is the being whom you would seek to know. And so to come near him is to feel ourselves to be undone. Lord, depart from me, calls out Peter. Woe is me, cries Isaiah. But at the same time, we are built for him which means this, we are endlessly drawn into the presence of one whose presence we cannot bear. And without knowledge of that, your understanding of salvation and fellowship with God are trivialized. There are many people that feel that the forgiveness of sins and fellowship with God are a kind of small matter because they've always been told that they're lovable and that God is just there waiting for them with open arms, and the only question is whether or not they will one day please choose God. They believe in a small, desperate God of little consequence. And if you view God as a desperate suitor, eternally down on his knee, just hoping and praying that one day you will say yes and make him the happiest man to ever live, then you can easily functionally think that your salvation is really your gift to God. Your grace to him, because you finally chose him and gave him his wish, and shouldn't he be happy to have you? Now, God does long for his people. He does spread out his arms in welcome, but he is not the pathetic weakling that many imagine. He is never anything less than the mighty God, 
utterly happy within himself and in need of nothing. The word of God comes to us and invites us into relationship with this being. And our response of faith credits us with a righteousness that enables us to actually be in his presence. Listen, have you ever cuddled with a cat? We, we come here, we stay with my folks, they have a cat, it's great. I, I love the cat, it's soft, it's cozy. But I, I often imagine, man, what if I could snuggle with a lion? I hope in the new heavens and new earth, it's like on my bucket list that we'll be able to do that because that would be so amazing, right? But kind of terrifying, right? It, it's because the lion is so awesome and could tear you apart that to draw near would be so awesome, The living God, the lion of the tribe of Judah, is infinitely beyond any earthly lion. But I think an awful lot of people would feel much more comfortable walking up to God in the Holy of Holies than they would ever feel approaching a lion. Consider what that indicates about their perception of God. So as God draws near, a dreadful and great darkness falls. He is God Almighty, the one before whose presence the entire created order will melt like wax in a furnace upon his return to judge the earth. That is the first challenge of faith. We see the second challenge starting in verse 13. He says, your offspring will be slaves, that's the word translated servants, will be slaves in a foreign land for 400 years. And if you were like reading along, that's not what you were probably expecting. Question, God, how will I know I'll possess the land? Answer, know with certainty your descendants will be slaves for 400 years oppressed in a foreign land. What? God's promises to us are beyond our imagination, but they come through the path of suffering. That has always been true. God tells us that the very same power, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in our mortal bodies. Meaning if you trust in Christ, you already have resurrection life resident within you. You are a co-heir of Christ. You will rule with him on his throne over the entire universe and possess the earth. The promise could not be any greater. But the slave is not above his master. And so when Paul speaks about the promise that comes to us, if God credits us with righteousness through our faith, he says this. He says, he seeks to be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Suffering is the second challenge to faith. But notice several things. First, God allowing his people to suffer does not negate his good intentions toward them. So in verses 14 and 15, he makes clear he will do justice. He will right every wrong that's been done. He will use this season of suffering to bring blessing. Abraham himself will die in peace. We see these two truths constantly. God is good. The path is hard. Both of those are true. And though that is a challenge to our faith, 
It is, I think, also one of the clearest confirmations that the Bible is true, because nobody would make this up. Can you imagine a person making up verse 13? Imagine a person thinking up the idea of 400 years of slavery and oppression being a part of the foundational promise of blessing given to the father of the faith. Can you imagine a person making up the idea of bringing about salvation through the shame, failure, and defeat of the cross? And that deep contradiction between what the Bible proclaims and what we naturally desire is part of the reason I think we know the Bible is from God, not man. This was hugely important in how the late English poet W.H. Auden came to faith. He, he said this is about why he ultimately became a believer and came to believe that God's word was true. He, he wrote, I believe because Jesus fulfills none of my dreams, because he is in every respect the opposite of what he would be if I could have made him in my own image. Thus, if a Christian is asked, why Jesus and not Socrates or Buddha or Confucius or Muhammad? Perhaps all I can say is, none of the others arouse all sides of my being to cry, crucify him. Now, as a brief point of application, let me pause here and mention one thing. In order to endure suffering, in order to have your faith not grow weak in the midst of trials, you have to expect suffering and trials. Because to a great extent, expectations govern our experience of life. If you don't know that God has promised you suffering, then you will likely wilt in the face of it. If suffering shakes your faith, it's perhaps because you have wrongly believed that suffering is contrary to the word of God in which you believe. Now, before we leave this section, let me point out one last thing. God will never violate his justice, and he does not play favorites. Why is it that Abram's descendants have to suffer in slavery and oppression for 400 years? Well, verse 16 tells us, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Do you appreciate what that's saying? Though God's mercy and salvation is immense, he will not violate justice in order to give his people the land. Meaning they cannot possess the land until it is time. It is the right and good and necessary time for God to bring judgment on the current inhabitants. God does not tell his people to just go out and conquer others. And so given a choice between God's people suffering for 400 years or dispossessing the wicked pagan inhabitants of the land before his justice requires it, God chooses for his people to suffer. And do you see the astonishing contrast between the God of Scripture and the false gods of other religions? He is the God of the whole world, of every nation, of every language, and of every people. He does not play favorites, and he never violates his justice. True faith holds on to the word of the living God to overcome all challenges. So up till now, we've seen three things that faith trusts God's word above all appearances, that faith is confirmed by God's covenant, and that faith overcomes all challenges. And that brings us to our last section, where we'll have to be very brief. 
Faith is guaranteed by God himself. Verse 17, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. And that is one of the most astonishing and shocking verses in the Bible. That word smoking is next used in the theophany in Exodus 19 and 20 when God comes down in glory on Mount Sinai at the giving of the law. The word flaming appears there in that same passage, meaning if there was any doubt whatsoever, this represents God himself. Now, typically in a covenant, both parties would pass through the pieces. But often when a sovereign, when a king made a treaty with his subjects, only the subjects would pass through the pieces signifying they alone were obligated to keep their side of the treaty. He would do as his good pleasure saw fit. This is the only place I know of in all of ancient literature in which the king passes through the pieces and the subject does not. That God would make a covenant with Abram to confirm his promise is incredibly gracious. That God would take all of the obligation upon himself is unprecedented. If, if anyone but God suggested this idea, it would feel preposterous, offensive, and maybe even blasphemous, is disrespectful to God. God is not only more awesome and glorious and terrifying than we can imagine, he is also more gracious and kind and condescending than we can imagine. Meaning, he is beyond our imagination in every one of his perfections. In effect, God says, Abram, I commit myself to bless you. I will tear myself apart before I fail to keep my word. And Abram, to fulfill this promise for all of your descendants, from you I expect exactly nothing. Abram's asleep. He's not even conscious. He has no role to play here. He has nothing to contribute. This is God's free grant to him. This is dependent upon God alone. And so human failure can never annul this covenant because it was never based on any commitment from people. It rests on God alone. And so as the story of redemption in the Bible moves forward, this promise over and over again will serve as the unassailable foundation of God's will to save. His people screw up. Judgment needs to come. And then you read, but God remembered his promise to Abraham. God himself guarantees his word. He personally is the guarantor of our faith. And listen, there is life-altering power here. If we will but know him, how can you know with certainty that all of God's promises to you will come true? Because God said so. Because he entered into a covenant with you. Because he himself makes himself the personal guarantee of his word. And maybe nobody knows the power of that reality better than small children. It still happens in our house, not as frequently as it used to. We have five boys, getting a little bit older. But one of them will come home from school and say, Dad, my teacher said something. Or two of the boys are having an argument, and they stop, and one of them comes to me, Dad, is Toronto in America or in Canada? And what happens? Well, Dad answers, and that settles it. It doesn't matter what the teacher says. It doesn't matter what the brother says or what the book says. Honestly, it doesn't even matter what Google says, because Dad knows. Like, case closed. 
Now, of course, with my older boys, that has started to wear off a good bit. Um, it should, because dad doesn't actually always know. In fact, there are many points where my older children are convinced that I know very, very little. Um, but there is a dad who always knows. There is a dad whose word settles every dispute, is always reliable. There is a dad whose word is so true that it not only trumps every other truth claim, it trumps reality itself. Meaning if the current state of the world does not align with the truth of God's word, then it is the world that will bend and be remade. The form of this world is passing away. His word remains forever. The, the Jewish scholar, Moshe Weinfeld, makes a really important observation about this, the way this promise is phrased in these last verses of our passage. There's, we've had lots of times since chapter 12 when God's been making promises to Abraham multiple times in chapter 12, again in chapter 13, again in chapter 15. And in, in every one of those, he uses the same tense of verb. But here, he does it differently with what a grammarian would call a perfective verb, meaning it's pictured as already complete. God has spoken. God has covenanted. God has personally guaranteed. To quote the Son of God as he fulfilled the terms of the final covenant, it is finished. Believe in him and his word and it will be counted to you as righteousness. Above all appearances, and in the face of all challenges, faith believes in the words of God himself. Let's pray.